0: Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I don't know how many weeks we've been in 1 Peter. It feels like a long time. That's how I feel at the end of pretty much all of my sermon series. But we, Here we discover a couple of new names and new ideas which we haven't seen yet. For instance, this f- uh, character Silas, who accompanied Paul on several of his missionary journeys. Silas might have actually helped Peter write the letter. One of the questions in New Testament studies, is how do you get such a high-level document as far as its, its proficiency in ancient Greek? It seems to be way above the standards of what an unschooled, ordinary fisherman would be able to write, and one of the answers that's been provided is that Silas helped Peter write this, and then delivered the letter to the churches that were located in Turkey. So we see him, we see also... Mark, who had abandoned Paul on one of his missionary journeys, restored back to Peter and the church. Uh, There's this cryptic reference. Did you notice that the, she who is in Babylon sends you greetings? What is that all about? Well, Babylon was probably code language, either for the city of Rome, where Christians were staying, or if they had been exiled from their Judean homeland and had been spread out in the Roman Empire, it could be code language for pretty much anywhere in the Roman Empire that Christians were living and existed. To him be the power forever and ever. Verse 11 is a great doxology, which is riffing off of the end of the Lord's Prayer. Thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What I really want to do this morning is Focus, as the sermon title suggests, that you have an enemy, a very real spiritual enemy, that the devil exists, that he's hideously cruel, um, and he really does want to destroy us. I read this week of a PCA missionary family who is overseas with Mission to the World. They said that they're located somewhere in a post-communistic atheist country I'd assume that it's in Eastern Europe though they never actually gave the location. When they arrived on the field back in 2013, they said they were met by complete shock. But it wasn't culture shock, as is often for new missionaries. It was spiritual shock. Blood was splattered on their door, the door of their apartment, several times. Nearly a gallon of urine was poured onto their baby stroller while they were out shopping. She she writes, we were abnormally sick, an, a, a high amount of time, uh, experienced terrible sleep deprivation. We sensed that there was an evil presence in our bedroom. At first, we thought we must be imagining things, but the climax was the nightmares that tormented our two-year-old son. For many months, he'd wake up screaming bloody murder in the middle of the night. When he turned two and a half, he was at the point where he could explain to us what it was that was troubling him. He had this dream about a woman with black hair and red eyes who wore only a bra and black pants. She would come to him in the middle of the night and offer him a basket of rotten fruit and force him to eat it. Our son is only two years old. This wasn't the typical toddler being chased by a bear. Kind of dream. As he went on to describe it, it was X rated. We were so overwhelmed with our situation, we called our teammates to come in and pray with us. So that night, while our son slept, we prayed at his bedroom windows that God would not allow any evil to enter into his room and that he would sleep peacefully. The next morning, I asked him, Did you have a nightmare last night? He answered, Yes. But this time, the woman was outside my window and couldn't get in. She couldn't come in. I I saw this more clearly than I think ever before when I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark about a year and a half ago. I saw just how much Satan hates our children. So the story is Jesus and his disciples are coming down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, and they meet a boy who seems to be experiencing epileptic seizures, but Mark tells us is actually possessed by a demon. Remember the picture of the boy that's given there? He is covered in burn scars from being burned, scabs from from being scratched. The father says, "I, I don't know what to do. This demon has tried to drown my boy. He throws my boy into the fire. He beats my boy up against rocks. And then he says, one of the statements that jumps out most of all, he says, and the, the demon renders my son mute. So, well, why would a demon render a, a boy mute? Well, so that he couldn't cry out when he's being drowned, when he's being tortured in, in the fire. I saw so clearly there how much Satan hates our children, if he could, he would torture them. He would, uh, he would do all sorts of things, hideously cruel things, if that was a strategy that worked really well in North America. Now, of course it doesn't. The last thing that Satan would want to do is spook us into recognizing his existence, right? very last thing that he would want to do is to draw a pentagram on our front lawn, Because that's not, I mean, we're a people that has absolutely no regard for the spiritual dimensions of this world. But I I just wanted you to realize how hideously cruel he is. When we read this metaphor that Peter uses about a lion that's prowling about, we think of the lazy lion at the zoo, so to speak. We think of just the natural cycle of prey and predator and, and We lose the sense of the the hideous cruelty that C.S. Lewis describes the devil in the space trilogy, the middle book, Paralondra. Remember that, how he describes it? It's set on the planet Venus, and Venus in the story is extremely lush and fertile. It's not cloudy and hot. There's an Eve-like character on Venus, and when the devil gets there, he's this nasty, idiotically cruel figure. He walks around Venus and he picks up a frog and slits it open with his fingernail. He rips the heads off of cute, cute furry creatures, Venus creatures. Um, he, when he's walking through the, the plants and the, the bushes, he just tears it apart mindlessly with delight. We, raised in America as we do, we're just blind to that d- dimension of reality. I mean, what do we get? We get the Fox Network, which I don't know if you saw this, but they started a new TV series back in January titled Lucifer, which depicts Satan, a.k.a. Lucifer Morningstar, as a misunderstood, lovable character who is sick and tired of the fight between light and darkness, good and evil. So he decides to take a vacation down here on earth and partners with the Los Angeles Police Department to help solve crimes. That's the very first episode. Uh, he encourages one of his former pupils, a pop star who made a deal with the devil years before. He encourages her to pull herself together and stop wasting her life on sex drugs and alcohol, but then she's killed in a drive-by shooting as the show website, the show's website explains. He feels something awake deep within him as a result of her murder. Is it compassion sympathy? He becomes a detective and that's that's the Satan we get in our world. One of the authors I enjoy reading uh, he he writes um, uh, uh, Roger Ayer. he Writes several different articles a week, but he was in Boston for a conference recently and he got into a cab to travel somewhere. The cab driver was a Haitian man from Haiti. The cab driver said, One of the oddest things about living in Boston is the blindness of so many people to the realm of the supernatural. I drive people from Harvard and MIT all the time, and when they find out I'm from Haiti, do you know what they want to talk about? They want to talk about voodoo but they don't believe any of it. I I tell them, you need to go to Haiti and see for yourself. This stuff is real. I took my 15-year-old boy to Haiti to show him, when you see it with your own eyes, you see it's real. I guarantee you, you have not thought about the devil over the last seven days. If we were to ask you the question, is the devil out to get you? That's the kind of question they ask on psychiatric evaluation tests. (laughs) Is the devil out to get you? You're supposed to circle no so that your profile doesn't come back really abnormal. But yes, Peter says, the devil is definitely out to get us. Now, it's not in the ways of spooking us or harassing us with blood. Not normally. But it is found in verses 5, 6, and 7, if you want to look there with me. Verse 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Pride is the first sin. Then he goes on to the second sin in verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, your worry, because he cares for you. Then suddenly, he jumps right on to your enemy, the devil, is looking around. He's about to devour you. Pride, anxiety, the devil. As Peter just... Is he skipping from one idea to the next indiscriminately? No. These are the tools that Satan is normally using to afflict us. For example, your pride is hurt by another person so deeply. You're so deeply aggrieved by another person that it becomes a grudge. And that grudge simmers inside of you so that you're always thinking about it, thinking about them, thinking about what they did to you, how unfair it was. And whenever it's there in your head, it's just making you matter and matter and matter. That doesn't seem devilish. That just seems like the, the natural thing sinners do. But it, but in fact, it is satanic. I mean, Peter or Paul says, "Do not let the sun go down on your anger." And so give the devil a foothold. Or another example, our anxieties. Did you realize that your anxieties, your worry is a refusal to believe that God loves you and cares for you? Your anxieties are a refusal to believe that God loves you and cares for you. It's just another way of thinking that God is not going to He's not going to be competent to handle the situation. I know how the situation should be going, and I think I will take control of the situation for myself. God doesn't really love you. You wouldn't be going through this if he did. I'm just making up these words, but we hear them. We hear things like them, and and when that's going through our minds, the little red lizard on our shoulder is going, you may not smell burning sulfur. But it's satanic. In Acts chapter 5, you get the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where they sell part of, oh, it was a piece of land that they owned. They take the proceeds from the land, and they say, we're just giving all of the proceeds to the church so the church can advance the gospel. But in reality, they only gave a portion of the proceeds to the church. They said they gave it all because they wanted to be regarded as more generous than they really were. And Peter looks them straight in the eye and says, Why has Satan filled your heart so that you would lie to us? Now, here is the truth. I have no idea how it works. I I I don't have any idea how a spiritual being outside of me can somehow work in my consciousness or my subconsciousness or infiltrate my dreams. I, does anybody here know how that? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how it works. It just tells us that it works, that Satan really can and does fill our hearts with lies. It tells us that Satan, number one, Satan wages a war of distortion. He wages a war of distortion. He seeks to make the most destructive things in the world look tantalizingly desirable and the most wonderful things in the world look unbearably boring. He distorts things. Number two, he wages a war of suspicion. He wages a war of suspicion through all of the disappointments and discouragements, the illnesses, the weaknesses, the weariness of life. He causes us to be very suspicious of God, that God loves us and is going to take care of us. And then he wages, number three, he wages a war of lies. If you would stop for just a moment and consider with me the the power, the sheer power of a lie and its ability to poison a relationship. If you think of the most intimate relationship that you have in this room— probably for most of you going to be your spouse it may be one of your children but just imagine that a suspicion a distortion comes into your mind that your spouse is not being faithful to you you never verbalize it it just keeps it's kind of nagging at the the back of your brain he he might be cheating on you she she might be running around and it just keeps and it's always there it's always running it, does that have any effect on your relationship, your marriage to them? Of course. I mean, it, it poisons it. And that's the key to the lie. All that matters is if you believe the lie is true, then the relationship is going to be radically poisoned. And that, I think, friends, is what Satan tries to do with us in our relationship with God. He tries to separate us from Christ through all of these little lies that... God doesn't know what he's doing in your life. God is not treating you fairly. God is one big bully up in heaven. The very lies that he spoke in the garden to Adam and Eve. God is a bully. Don't you realize what he's actually doing here? And his ability to um, prey upon your sense of self-pity. The devil will always try and prey upon your your own self-pity and your propensity to envy. So I guess the second question I would like you to ask yourself sometime today when you're out on a walk taking in the glories of God's creation, the question I'd like you to truly ask and answer today is what lies are you being told? What lies are the is the devil whispering in your ear? I know what the lies were for these first century Christians. The lie was that That God had either rejected them or this whole faith thing was just one big, um, it just wasn't real. And the sufferings they were going through, they were meaningless. So if all the devil could do was ultimately make them crumble in the face of persecution give up entirely because the suffering was too hard, then the gospel would never spread throughout Turkey and it would never spread throughout the Roman Empire and we wouldn't get to bask in the light of the gospel today. It also strikes me as eerily, it's almost prophetic when he talks about the devil being a roaring lion because what happens 30 years later after this letter is written with roaring lions but that Christians are devoured by them. I mean, you, you wonder if they could almost hear the lions, so to speak, in the distance. And yet they didn't give up. We owe these people our lives in many respects because they didn't give up. They resisted the devil. And how did they resist the devil, Peter says? By humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God and casting all of their anxieties upon the God who cares for them. Finally, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, which involves what pieces? The belt of truth, Strap it around your your waist. The armor of righteousness. Put it on your chest. Feet sandaled in the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What I notice is that pretty much every uh, piece of the armor is just another way of speaking about the gospel. It amplifies some aspect of the gospel. So to put on the full armor of God in resisting the devil is a creative way of saying, apply the beauty and the power and the glory of the gospel to your life. I mean, I I know there's nothing novel to that approach. You've heard it from the pulpit a number of times or in Sunday school class. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, a couple hundred years ago, that the preaching of the gospel is the whip that flogs the devil's back. (laughs) I like that. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Apply the gospel to your worries, your struggles, your temptations, especially to your anxieties, because who of us is not being assaulted by our anxieties? Instead of being worried about it, whatever the it is, always thinking about it, having it consume you, you you put the gospel in the center of your mind. You think about the wisdom of God and triumphing over the devil by the cross. I I came across this uh, amazing quote this week, um, and now I've forgotten it. (laughs) Typical, but... Basically, it asked the question, why did the, why did the devil ever think he could win? I mean, if, he's, if he's smart as he is, why would the devil ever think that he could crucify Jesus and by doing this on the day of Passover, that, why would he ever think that he could win? And the answer that the early church fathers gave to that question stunned me. Number one is the devil didn't know that Jesus was God. He really didn't know that. When he's tempting him in the wilderness, he says, are you the son of God? He really didn't know and believe that. But number two, even more importantly, and this is the one that just blew my mind, the devil didn't know that God is Trinitarian love. The devil did not know that God is triune, an eternal community of love, because the only way that you would know the God is triune love is by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't have that. And so he, he, he ne- it never dawned on him that Trinitarian love would win the day and win rebellious lost sinners like us. And, and that's why he did what he did. Uh, so that's what you, I don't know if that's powerful, but that was really powerful for me to consider Uh, You think about God's love. And to your anxiety, you speak back to them. How dare I question God when he has done so much for me? I'm going to think about your wisdom. I'm going to think about your love. I'm going to do my very best to talk about that with my children when I sit down, when I'm driving, when I'm walking, every way. I'm going to find myself, I'm going to center myself in the strong man which is Jesus Christ. And I do that by preaching the gospel to myself daily. Is that what you do? Verse 10. I love that this passage finishes with a promise. He says, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I believe that that's a promise you can bank on. To him be the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.